morning's sermon is Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use one in the in the seat in front of you to follow along as we read this uh, several verses here together, page uh, 56 and 57 in the Pew Bible. And so we're talking about this um, this exodus, this movement out of slavery into uh, the beginning of freedom before they spend their time in the desert and then eventually into the promised land. So Exodus chapter 14, we're going to begin with verse 10. Let's stand together as we read God's word. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent or to be still. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, to lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea and all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right and to the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. You may be seated. 
Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. As we begin our study in the book of Genesis, we find ourselves here starting in the book of Exodus. And so I start with this question, why if you're beginning a journey in Genesis, why would you make your first step the book of Exodus? I mean, Genesis seems like a great place to start because just in verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you start with the beginning if you're trying to begin with the beginning. Say that three times fast. Well, the reason you wouldn't start with Genesis is because every book of the Bible has a, has a context, has a, has a congregation that it's being taught to. And that congregation, that audience, is the people of the Exodus. They, they've come out of Egypt. They're fought, they've, they found themselves in this, the, the far side of the Red Sea. They're beginning this long journey in the wilderness before they get to the Promised Land. And this is the congregation. This is the group of people that Moses, like the pastor, is standing up and saying, hey, I need you to tell you something about who God is. And so when I think about the book of Exodus, the Exodus is like the sun that sort of creases the horizon. When it, when it comes up over the horizon, it shines light in every direction. And so Exodus shines light backwards and helps you understand and, and appreciate this message of Genesis. It shines light down and it, it reveals something new. And it also shines light ahead. So the book of Exodus is a very key book in the Bible. And you can look at Exodus and you can see so many things and so many themes in the Bible. So that's how I want to approach this particular text. And really what we're looking at today is thinking about Exodus being the sun that's coming up and it's going to show us something old. It's going to shine light on Genesis. It's going to reveal something new, shine light on who God is. And it's going to point to something yet that hasn't happened in the future. So let's begin as we just think about shining light backwards or shining light on something old. Like I said, whenever you study the Bible, the first thing you want to ask, the first question you want to ask is, who's the first audience? When you're studying the Bible, you don't want to first start with yourself. Like, you don't want to start saying, what does this passage mean to me? That's a bad question. You want to start and say, what does this passage actually mean? It means something particular. And the, one of the best ways to get to it is to try to put yourself in the audience to say, how would the first group of people have heard this particular message? And then you can make application to yourself. And let me give you an example of that in the book of Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah is a prophet to the nation of Judah. You might remember that Israel and Judah had split apart. Israel had become unfaithful and Judah was now becoming unfaithful. Judah was this last little remnant, this last little group of faithful believers, these people who had come across the Jordan stormy banks. They they were part of this new covenant, intimate relationship with God, and they were sort of the holdouts, except for they weren't holding out. And God has come to these people and they've been unfaithful. They're following after the idols of the culture. And it's helpful to understand that's the context when you get to chapter 2. And Jeremiah says this, I remember the devotion of your youth and how as a bride you loved me. So you get, you get God's heartbeat. We had a relationship. We got married. You, you remember how it was when right in the beginning we loved each other and there was nothing that was going to get in between us, just like you might see in a, in a, a newly married couple. There, there wasn't any other distraction. I wasn't going to have my eyes on anyone or anything else. That's how it was. And then he goes on to say, but yet you followed after worthless idols and you've become worthless yourself. And I heard you say to me, this is the Lord speaking to Judah. I will not serve you. So on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down like a prostitute. See, if you don't understand the audience, when you get to this particular verse, you don't really understand the impact of what's happening here. God's saying we had a marriage, we had a covenant relationship, and now you've prostituted yourself by following after other gods. So when you come to Jeremiah, what you hear God saying all the way through all these chapters is he comes to his people and says, you're cheating on me. I can't believe it. So it's helpful to have a context. And the same thing happens when we're trying to look at the book of Genesis. We want to say, OK, Genesis is saying something, but who is it primarily talking to? Who's the who's the first audience? Who's the target audience? And that audience is the people of the Exodus. Moses is the author of Exodus. Moses is, is the, most scholars agree he's the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and, and he's been part of rescuing these people, bringing them across the Red Sea. And here they now are in the desert and they're in this classroom. And these people are basically saying, hey, we've been slaves for 400 years. And now this God, this God now that we know by name, Yahweh, he saved us. What is this God like? What does this God want from us? How is it this God is so much more powerful than the gods of Pharaoh? Those are the kinds of questions that these people are asking. So if you just imagine you've been enslaved for 400 years for 16 generations. Think about the historical momentum that would be behind you if for 16 generations, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, they all lived in one way. When you're born, so much momentum would be behind you to believe certain things. They have a certain worldview. They've been brought up for 400 years. They're the ones that made many of the pyramids. They made many of the idols and, and the images. And so they're, they're understanding, hey, there's Pharaoh, he's a god. He's actually the son of God, and that God, the main God, is the son called Ray. So Ray is the main God, and Pharaoh, he's sort of like the incarnate 
God that's down here on the earth. And then there's the God of the sky. There's the God of the waters. There's the God of the animals. There's all kinds of gods in Egypt. And so now this new God has come in and he saved us from all those other quote unquote gods. And it's not surprising that the very first message, the very first lesson that Moses teaches his people is to say in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And just think about the first chapter of the of the of the of Genesis. What did he create? The sky, the sun, the water, the animals, and humanity. So Moses is coming down in this very first lesson and saying, okay, what you've grown up with, this 16 generations of momentum, I'm trying to reverse all that. I'm trying to deconstruct all that to say, no, there's really just one God. He's the creator and he's created everything. So why is this God powerful enough to defeat all the gods of Pharaoh? Well, he made all those things. It's no problem for him as the creator. See, the Israelites had understood how to worship the creation. And Moses is coming out and saying, no, I want you to understand you need to worship the creator. And that creator is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He's the one who has saved you. So when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you wouldn't open up Genesis 1 and 2 and primarily think of it as a science textbook. You would think, no, I'm in ex- I've just made this exodus, and I have all this history behind me, and I need to know that Moses is trying to help me to say, there's just one God, he created everything, and he's powerful enough to be over all creation. So, so understanding exodus, understanding the congregation, when we get to Genesis 1-1 next week, then you'll say, okay, now I'm in the congregation. I'm in the audience. I see how Exodus sort of shines light back on Genesis 1 and 2. Second thing we have here is we learn something new. Something happens here in Exodus that hasn't happened before. So the sun breaks the horizon and it shines down and says, hey, something here is new. And we see that in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. Listen to what God says to Moses. I am the Lord. I did appear. I appeared to Abraham. I appeared to Isaac. I appeared to Jacob. And I appeared as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, which in the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. But by my name, I did not, did not make myself known to them. But I'm making myself known to you by my first name. See what he's saying? I want to have a first name relationship with you. I want to have this intimacy. I I don't want it to be a religion. I want it to be a relationship. I want us to know each other by name. I'm giving you my name. I want you to call on me by my name. It's it's amazing. It's amazing how God is unlike anyone else or any other God. He wants to be on a first name basis. It's this astonishing sort of earth shattering revelation when God says, hey, just call me dad. Just call me Yahweh. We're going to have that kind of relationship. This this divine disclosure of God's first name, so to speak, this face to face relationship is a reminder Of Genesis chapter 1. Why? Because when God formed Adam. 
How did he, how did he make him come alive? <sighs> Breathed life into him. So when Adam opened his eyes, who's the first person he saw? God. They had this face-to-face, intimate relationship. And then it says in, in Genesis 3, they walked together in the garden. So God is trying to say, hey, I'm trying to get back to this kind of thing. I'm trying to help you understand who I am. I want to be on a first, I don't want to be on a first name basis. I want this kind of intimate relationship. See, all the things that the Israelites had known is, is that you need to have a religion. And the religion is distant. Uh, the God is impersonal. And you make sacrifices in order to get to God. And when they come out in the desert, they learn the exact opposite. God isn't distant. He's near. He's not impersonal. He's personal. And, and stunningly, God's making the sacrifices to get to you, not you're making the sacrifices to get to him. Such a huge difference. See, so many times what we think is, if I make certain sacrifices, then God's going to like me. I'm making the sacrifices hoping he notices me. And the, and the God of the Bible is saying, no, I'm making the sacrifices hoping you would notice me. It's the complete opposite. I was talking to a young man uh, this week, and he was like, well, how do you get to heaven, Pastor Paul? And I said, well, you know, you've got to believe in Jesus. Yeah, but you've got to do good, right? And I wanted him to do good. And I said, well, you need to do good. But that's not how you get there. You get there because God has done something good on your behalf. See, if you start out thinking, I'm coming to the church and I'm doing these things. I'm, I'm in church. I'm doing some things good. I hope God's favor. See, that's totally opposite. That's the world's way of thinking. The Bible is saying, no, God's making all the sacrifices so he can get to you and be in this face-to-face relationship with you. So we see that, that Exodus comes up over the horizon. It helps us see, hey, this is the congregation for Genesis chapter 1. Actually, Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 50. So when we read through it this fall, we're going to say the congregation, the first target audience is that target audience. How would they understand it? And then how does it apply to us? The second thing is we see that God wants this intimate relationship. He wants to be on a first name basis. And then the third thing we see is that the Exodus is shining light ahead. It's it's showing us something that is to come. Exodus, uh, Exodus, according to Michael Williams, he says, in Exodus, God establishes the pattern of redemption. There's a particular pattern that we'll see that God establishes in Exodus that will say, hey, this looks a lot like the New Testament. And there's so many great there's so many great things in this particular text. I can't point them all out. But I want us to start by stepping back and just asking ourselves, what if we could sort of transport ourselves to the people that are in the wilderness and we ask them, hey, can you just give us a testimony? I mean, what, what is God like? What has he done for you? What would their testimony might what their what would their testimony might sound like? And one Old Testament scholar says this. They would say something like this. Well, I was a foreigner in a land, a foreigner in a land and I was in bondage. I was sentenced to death. But God intervened and I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And then a mediator, Moses, he led us out of slavery. We crossed over from death to life 
from slavery to freedom. And now we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. And and on our way, God has given us his laws so we know how to live while we're on our way. He's given us his tabernacle, his tent that's in in the middle of us to understand that we still need grace. And then he also promises to stay with us until we get all the way home. Now, doesn't that sound strangely familiar? Doesn't that sound just like your testimony? I was in some kind of slavery. I was in some kind of bondage. I couldn't possibly free myself, but I took shelter underneath the blood of the lamb. And my mediator came and he he stretched out his arms so that I might cross over from from death to life, from slavery to freedom. And I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm not there yet. But on my way, I'm reminded of this gathering of people that I still need grace to get there. I need I need God's commands to help me not wander off. And I know this God's going to bring me all the way home. See, there's a pattern in Exodus. When Exodus comes up, the sun starts to shine and you see behind, you see down on where you are and you see you see far ahead. And like I said, here in Exodus 14, there's so many great things here. And I'm tempted to to mention 20 of them, but I I don't think you'll remember 20. I'm hoping you'll remember three. So let me just point out three great little gems here in this text that help us see the light that's coming in the person of Christ. Number one, we are saved by grace. You see it very easily in chapter 14, verse 13. Look at this. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still or be silent. See, the Israelites had been freed by Pharaoh after the Passover. And they're making their way out into the the desert. And Pharaoh decides, uh, 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 I've got to change my mind here. I'm losing all my workforce, my, my sl- free slave labor. So he gathers all his chariots up and he races after them. And, and he pins the Israelites against the sea. So there's no way out. There's no way these Israelites can escape. And so Pharaoh has them in a perfect spot. And right at that, that moment, Moses stands up and he essentially says, you're going to be saved by grace. You're not going to be saved by your works. I want you to stand still. Here's your contribution to your salvation. It's, it's nothing. If you could just be quiet and you could do nothing, then you can get saved. But see, the hardest thing for us, isn't it so hard to do nothing? I said this a couple of weeks ago. John Gerstner said, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. But very few people have that. See, he's saying, I don't want anybody to get confused on who the rescuer is here. I'm going to do something so miraculous, and you just need to stand there and watch it and know that I'm the Lord. I'm the one who's saving people. And so he sends this strong east wind, it says, and he blows the sea back. Imagine just being out at Wrightsville Beach, and you're blowing the sea back. How foolish would it be if you were there and thought, Hey, maybe I should help out. And you ran down to the ocean. You're like, look what I did, guy. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, that'd be ridiculous. 
Nobody would think you're making any meaningful contribution. All you need to do is stand back and watch the Lord make a way. And then when you get to the other side, you'll say, the only reason I'm here is by God. And it's the same pattern in Exodus is what happens in the New Testament. The only way you get to the other side is this powerful grace and mercy of God. Second little gem here in this text is that we're freed from sin, but sin is still threatening. You see it a couple of ways here. First of all, Pharaoh had done the Emancipation Proclamation. Hey, guys, I don't want any more of the plagues. You guys get out of here. So you're free. You're, you're, at that moment, you're declared free. But then Pharaoh says, hey, I'm changing my mind. I'm coming back. And, and it's just like sin. You think you're free from it, and then it comes racing back in for you. And then Moses says, okay, let's make sure we just put this all to an end. They, they cross over to the other side. And then you see this, what's really a, a terrifying and humbling few verses. Verse 26, they make it to the other side. Then the Lord says to Moses, now turn around, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. So Moses stretches out his hand, the sea returns, the Egyptians are covered with water. Verse 30, but the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw, they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So this huge tidal wave of water comes back in, and these dead bodies and parts begin to float ashore at the feet of the Israelites. The old slave master, it's like this picture. This old slave master, it's dead. And God took care of it. And you didn't have anything to do with it. What is that a picture of? The cross. He takes care of the old slave master. And when he dies, it's dead to you. Amen. But, and you would think, okay, they are free. I mean, they are really free. They are not going to be sinning anymore, right? Oh, oh, I wish it would be true. I mean, you'd think, you see the dead bodies. You see, you're standing there. I can't believe I've been rescued. I'm going to be for God until I get hungry. And then I'm going to complain And they spend most of the rest of the book complaining. And sometimes they say, would you take us back to Egypt? Can you believe that? Answer, yes, you can. Because you have old habits. You, You are free from the penalty of sin, but we're not free from the power of sin. The power of sin is still these old habits. They have 16 generations of old patterns that they have to unload and get rid of. And you constantly have to come back to your own soul and say, okay, I'm free from the penalty, but the power is still at me and I still need to work at it. So sin is still working on me. And then I, by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, have to put that to death. And we see that so easily in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul and Romans. 
You remember in Romans, Paul says, who's going to save me from this body of death? Answer, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation. You are free. There is nothing you can do. He's paid it all. Amen. But then he says in verse 13, by the spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Oh, see, I still have this old pattern in me that wants to go backwards. And now by the the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm putting to death these old patterns. We see this pattern in Exodus. It comes back up again in the New Testament. The final thing I want to say here is that we also need a mediator. This third gem. We see this in verses 21 through 26 where Moses is the mediator. If you were to look back in chapter 12, you have the last plague, the Passover. And the angel of death. Death is going to come down on Egypt. And this judgment is coming down. And the question you would ask is, okay, why were the Israelites saved, but the Egyptians were punished? This angel of death came down, and the Israelites were saved, but the Egyptians were punished. Why is that? Was it because the Israelites were better people? You kind of had the good people over here, they didn't get punished, and you had the bad Egyptians over here, they got punished. Answer, no. How did you get saved from death in Exodus 12? You took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. That's how you got saved. You had a mediator. You had somebody standing between you and judgment that could absorb God's wrath. Same thing happens in Exodus 14. God's coming down. His judgment's coming. Why did the Israelites make it across? And why did the Egyptians not make it across? The answer is not because the Israelites were better, because they weren't. It's because they had a mediator. They had Moses standing there with his hands open. And he says, anyone who finds shelter under me can cross over from death to life. And you see that and you immediately say, yeah, that's Jesus. It's a pattern of redemption that I see in Exodus. The sun comes up, it breaks the horizon, and I say, this is what I'm going to be looking for as I move ahead. We have a a greater mediator in Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who stands at the edge of chaos and, and a great arm, and he says, anyone who wants to come, anyone find shelter under me, you can go from freedom from slavery to freedom so god establishes a pattern of redemption let me just make two final references here that you can look up later luke chapter 9 peter james john jesus they're on a journey to a mountain it's called the mount of transfiguration this is where god comes down somehow in this sort of a glory cloud and two people appear you remember that Moses and Elijah appear, and Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are having a conversation. Oh, how I'd like to know what that conversation was. But what Luke says is they were talking about Jesus' departure, and if you were to read it in Greek, it would say they were talking about the Exodus. A, A pretty big clue as to what Jesus is doing. 
He's leading a brand new and final exodus. That the people who really want to get from this world into the new heavens and new earth, he's going to be the mediator. He's going to be the one. And then if you were to look at Revelation chapter 15, here we are at the end of all time. We're, we're sort of at this focal point where this old timeline is vanishing and this new heavens and new earth is beginning to open up. And there's this final battle. And after the final battle, the, the, the people who are redeemed, they sing a song. Just like you would imagine. You have this final victory and you can't just say, wow, what a neat victory. You can't say that. You've got to go, let's sing our fight song. Let's sing a song. And here's what it says. They saw they sung the song of the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. So here we are, whatever point Revelation 15 is in the timeline, whether that's tomorrow or in 10,000 years, we're going to be singing the song of Moses and the lamb. So the reason you start with Exodus One reason to start with Exodus. It's like the sun. It comes up and you go, okay, I see something in Genesis that I wouldn't have understood if I didn't understand the congregation of Exodus. I see now that God, he wants not a religion. He wants a relationship. He wants to have a face-to-face. He wants to be on a first-name basis. And then I see as a pattern. I see this is the way God's operated, and this is the way he's going to operate one final time in the person of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this passage is just packed full of so much helpful uh, theology, but it just comes in a picture form. It's so easy for us to see. It's so easy, easy easy, easy for us to see because it's a in like a picture book. The way you deal with your people, the way you want a relationship that you are the, the true God, you're the creator, you're not the creation. That you're the mediator, you're the one that brings people from slavery into, into freedom. You're the one that wants a personal, intimate, first name relationship with your people. So I pray, Lord, that any person here who doesn't have that relationship, that today would be the day they would find shelter underneath the blood of the Lamb. They would know that Jesus has absorbed all the, the penalty for sin. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can now begin to defeat the power of indwelling sin. And know that one day they'll be free from the presence of sin in your midst. Lord, for those who just need reminder, they need, recur- they need the encouragement. They're, maybe they feel like their, their lives, their their souls, their marriage, uh, their, whatever, they're in a desert, they're in a dry place, they're just wandering around. Would, would this be a place, a, a, a passage that would recapture them and help them remember, oh, remember how it was in the beginning, we were like this bride and groom. And know that, that God's going to take you and bring you all the way home. We trust in that. That's our hope in Jesus' name.